This program is brought to you by Emory University. Well, welcome uh, to this uh, Dean's Lecture. Um, it's really my pleasure to introduce uh, Paul Coleman to you today. Uh, Father Coleman teaches at Notre Dame, and he wears many, many hats. He is Executive Director of the Center for Social Concerns, which provides community-based learning and service for the Notre Dame community. He is a fellow of the Helen Kellogg Institute for International Studies, as well as a fellow of the Joan B. Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and the Nanovic Institute for European Studies, in addition to being an associate professor in the Department of Theology. So, indeed, his versatility is one of the reasons we've invited him to speak to us today. He is a scholar of the history of missions, of Christianity in Africa, and the increasingly prominent field of world Christianity. He has training in anthropology and the history of religions, but also experience as a Catholic priest in Africa. He brings methodological creativity and firsthand insight to his work. He has published The Evangelization of Slaves and Catholic Origins in Eastern Africa in 2005 with Orbis, as well as many journal articles and reviews. He currently has two projects, uh, one an historical study of Catholic missionary evangelization in Eastern Africa, as well as a longer-term study in collaboration with two political scientists on Catholic charismatic movements in Africa. In addition to lecturing today, he will serve as a consultant to the 2013 Luce Seminar. His topic for us is Understanding the World Christian Turn in Theology and the History of Christianity. Please join me in welcoming Paul Cole. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan, and it's really nice to be here at Candler and Emory University, a place I've never been, but it's really a beautiful place on a warm day. I live in northern Indiana where it's not so warm. Um, in fact, there's very little green there yet, so we're, I was glad to see a lot of green. In December... 2012, just five months ago, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life released the Global Religious Landscape, a report on the size and distribution of the world's major religious groups as of 2010. The report included the following news about Christianity. The still large number of Europeans, counting as Christian, 558 million, which remains the largest number on any continent, though Africa, Latin America will pass it soon, and Africa probably not very long after. The median age of Christians worldwide is 30 years. The median age for Muslims is 23. But there are huge disparities among the Christian median age geographically. In Africa and Asia, Christians are much younger than they are in Europe, North America, and Australia. Finally, that Christians are by far the most evenly distributed large religious group in the world. Asia houses the majority of Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, members of folk religions, and also the religiously unaffiliated. Survey results like this help situate and explain the commonplace term world Christianity as well as near equivalents like global Christianity. World Christianity, thus is the term, marks an attempt to name, a name various transformations in the world Christian movement. The phrase deployed by Dale Irvin and Scott Sundquist in their so far two-volume history of the world Christian movement. And one aspect of this change, probably the most momentous one, is the shift in Christian populations away from the West 
North America, Europe, Oceania, to the global south or the majority worlds, Asia, Africa, Latin America, Caribbean, Pacific Islands, etc. Christianity is clearly no longer a Western religion if it ever was. A second related factor explaining the growing use of this term world Christianity is the emergence of the field called world Christianity, um, which exists to kind of grasp the significance of these changes in a self-conscious, critical way. As Irvin puts it, world Christianity is, quote, an emerging field that investigates and seeks to understand Christian communities' faith and practice as found on six continents, expressed in diverse ecclesial traditions, and informed by the multitude of historical and cultural experiences. It is concerned with both the diversity of local or indigenous expressions of Christian life and faith and the variety of ways these interact with one another across time and space. It is particularly concerned, he continues, with underrepresented and marginalized communities of faith, Asia, Africa, Latin America, the experience of marginalized communities within the North, the global North, and experiences of women throughout the world. As Irvin's definition suggests, behind the field lie both the new realities, Christian communities in six continents, and a newly felt imperative among some scholars to better understand previously underrepresented and previously misunderstood or underunderstood groups. Now, there's been some muted backlash against the term world Christianity. I detect three sorts. Someone like Peter Fawn says that Christianity has already long been global, so that world Christianity really names nothing new. A second set of criticisms says that world Christianity as a field often assumes that Christianity in the West is dying and ought not be of concern to us. And people like Robert Wuth now and Mark Knoll say, no, there's, there's a lot of diversity in Western Christianity, especially, not only, but especially in North America. And challenges of a different sort come from the post-colonial, post-critical edge scholars like uh, Tomoko Masusawa and Namsoon Kang, who see in words like world and global extensions of Western hegemony in new guises. Yet even if the term is problematic, world Christianity's growth as a field is obvious in job descriptions, faculty positions, journals, book titles, academic courses, centers, and institutes, not least here at Emory and Candler. My contention will be that the appearance and domestication of this term, world Christianity, marks a turn of sorts. Not unlike various turns discerned in humanistic and social scientific disciplines over the past few decades, the postmodern, postcolonial cultural turn, turns associated with certain seminal intellectual figures like Kant and Wittgenstein. The metaphor of turn aptly captures what I think has happened in the study of Christianity under the influence of the term world Christianity as phenomenon, and also as a phenomenon and a field. We are moving, I would say, beyond the turn. That is, into a situation where scholars of more and more aspects of Christianity will be increasingly expected to consider the world or global implications of their work. In considering these changes I discern under the impact of the world Christian turn, I will first focus on the history of Christianity, where I think the turn is most clear, before making some brief observations about Catholic theology in particular. 
So, witnessing world Christianity. The history of Christianity is shaped by world Christianity. In his introduction to a recently edited volume entitled Introducing, Introducing World Christianity, Charles Farhadian of Westmont College in California identifies three paradigms through which world Christianity has been invoked and explored. First, there has been for at least a century, and probably longer, efforts to map Christianity's changing demographics. Without ceasing, that demographic impulse has been enveloped in the last 20 or 30 years by a second paradigm, starting in the later 20th century, that noticing the polycentric nature of Christianity has looked at diverse examples of local agency in Christian communities. Finally, and more recently, Farhadian discerns uh, a move beyond this demographic or historical approach to a third paradigm. He writes, to complement the breadth of historical analysis, we need the depth of what can be unearthed, unearthed through social scientific investigation, since such perspectives help us see Christianity as events that have transformed the milieus around them. Farhadian lends an historical perspective to what I will call here the world Christian turn. And I see three ways that the world Christian turn marks this field of history of Christianity. First, the world Christian turn increases the breadth of how the history of Christianity is presented. Second, the world Christian turn shapes the narrative structures of historical accounts of particular Christian communities. And fine, finally, the world Christian turn discloses new comparative perspectives in which Christianity's regularities and discrepancies might be placed. So first, increasing breadth in comprehensive histories of Christianity. One aspect of the turn toward world Christianity has been an increased decentering in comprehensive historical works of presuppositions that guided them in the past. If you taught the history of Christianity at Candler Theological Seminary or most other seminaries in the Protestant world, certainly 50 years ago and in Catholic world starting 30 years ago, processes like the formation of the great tradition of the Eastern Mediterranean in Christianity's first six centuries, the events centered around Rome and Constantinople culminating in the supposed break in 1054, the Protestant Reformation and its aftermath, these would have loomed very large in the historical story that you told and studied. It's quite clear in the history of Christianity, a lot increasing number of large historical works, those events no longer merit the centrality they once did. Normative assumptions focusing on the theological and institutional formations of Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism have given way to more diverse concerns. Some of this comes from historical scholarship in general, which is interested in social, social history, not just major events and figures. But another impetus comes from the demographics of the world Christian movement. If 60% of the world's Christians now live in Latin America, Asia, and Africa, why should theological and political questions driving past historiography that focused on Western Christianity continue to dominate historical understanding. So we have more interest in the marginalized communities of faith that Irvin identifies. One easy way to mark this is to compare two works with apparent similar scope by Martin Marty, 
one of the deans of the history of Christianity. In 1987, Marty published A Short History of Christianity. So that was only 1987? How many years ago? 26 years ago? Um, the index in that book has no Africa, no Ethiopia, no India. And its orientation around the traditional history of Christianity syllabus is very obvious. It's a brilliant book, don't get me wrong. And I'm an admirer. Very different is Martin Marty's 2007, a Christian, The Christian World, A Global History, which is organized geographically with episodes named by region. Africa has two such episodes. Asia and Europe also two each. Latin America, one each. Now, Marty does not ignore creedal and doctrinal developments, but these are situated in larger historical currents and the regional histories of the, region, of the regions that, where Christianity has grown. So in 20 years, Martin Marty's historiographic imagination has been changed under the impact of something that I want to call here the world Christian turn. One of the most important consequences of the world Christian turn, for me, has been growing appreciation for non-Chalcedonian Christianity. Not part of the great tradition, and mostly peripheral, most of the great tradition, mostly peripheral to the splits between the Orthodox East and West, and later the splits among Western Christians. One reason for this increased interest is that non-Chalcedonian Christianity is the earliest form of Christianity in lots of places where Christianity is growing so rapidly. Mainstream historians in the West often ignored these Christianities. Certainly Martin Marty did in his book 1987. Not the case in the 2007 book, nor is it the case in two other even more recent works. First, take Jarmid McCullough's 2009 A History of Christianity, The First 3,000 Years. The subtitle itself deliberately shocks us, right? The calendar that orients our lives presumes that Christianity is not 3,000 years old, but only 2013 or so years old. McCulloch's point derives from two instincts in the world Christian turn. First, that that locates Christianity within larger processes of global change and development, which predate the birth of Christ. He locates Christianity in Hellenistic, Middle Eastern religious dynamics. Second, and it also moves across the globe, Second, however, and probably more interesting, is he sort of sees these three great originating traditions, not just two. And he begins with the Syriac East, which, after Chalcedon, is non-Chalcedonian, and which shapes Christianity to India, to Ethiopia, and much of contemporary Egypt. Similar shifting is evident in Robert J. Wilkins, 2012, The First Thousand Years, A Global History of Christianity. Doesn't have as shocking a title, but it also gives evidence of the world Christian turn. Wilkins' work, hitherto very influential, has focused on the Eastern Mediterranean. But in this book, his compass has widened considerably, with the earliest Christianities in Africa and Asia also foregrounded. And in his introduction, Wilkins sort of speaks of his long-standing desire to, quote, show the wide geographical reach of Christianity in the first millennium. Then he admits, this is an important admission, I think, but only as I read more broadly and learned about Christianity in such regions as Armenia, Persia, Ethiopia, Central Asia, India, and China, did I realize how energetic and enterprising the mission to spread the Christian gospel was and what vast reach it has had in its early centuries. 
Importantly, the thousand years that Wilkin places in his title reflect not only the achievements of the Carolingian West, which culminated about then, but also an appropriate break for other regional understandings shaped by non-Chalcedonian, non-Western Christianity. The first is China. When Christianity came to a rather abrupt end around 1000 with the fall of the Tang Dynasty. The second is the Persian Empire, where Christian communities with non-Chalcedonian roots faced very dramatic Islamization and widespread martyrdoms about that same time and were moribund by the end of the first millennium, more or less. World Christianity as a field and a phenomenon has had its effects on these large-scale historical works. Second, my second point is that local histories of Christianity, as they're told, have also been shifted under the impact of the world Christian turn. Studies like this, and there are a variety of them, deploy a variety of metaphors to capture the dialectical relationship between the Christianity that arrived and how it was transformed. Terms like syncretism and conversion, laden with value judgments, have given way to a variety of modes of description. Transmission, reception, translation, localization, indigenization, hybridity, enculturation, contextualization, accommodation, resistance, incarnation, naturalization, encounter, appropriation, domestication, internalization, creolization. I could go on. That's a partial list. Now, of course, studies of this sort highlight the social sciences. And telling the story of a Christian community mindful of world Christianity often requires combining the skills of an anthropologist or sociologist and an historian. Among a lot of story, uh, studies that attempt this combination, I'm going to just mention three. First, historian Pierre Larson, I think he's at Johns Hopkins, studies the evolution of historical identities in Madagascar. His 2009 book, Ocean of Letters, shows how the Indian Ocean world in which Madagascar partakes helped produce Malagasy identity starting in the late 18th century. And central to that identity was the deployment of a, a language that was shaped by, profoundly shaped by Christian missionization and reactions pro and con to missionary activity as marina elites fostered something that became taken for granted center of Madagascar identity. Larson is primarily an historian who engages anthropology. My second example is Brian Howell, 2008 book on Southern Baptists in the Philippines. Howell is an anthropologist, but he brings an historical perspective to the study of three different congregations who take a global Christian faith, Protestant faith, and indigenize it very differently. Howell does not want to embrace some meta-narrative of, of modernity, and he doesn't want to valorize or kind of prefer one such outcome. What he, he tries to identify post-missionary Christianity, a term I think he coined, um, as enacted very self-consciously by believers as they position themselves in a global world. They're very mindful of being part of a larger Christian global landscape, and they choose and deploy particular Baptist identities differently as they situate themselves there. My third example is a study of Zulu Christians by a guy named Robert Houle. I think that's how he pronounces his name, H-O-U-L-E. Um, he uses the term naturalization, to t he's, a, he's a think and historian, 
to name how Zulu Christians took control of their own religious identity in the 19th century, drawing on tools brought by American Christian missionaries. Houle wants to kind of uncover and, I would say, subvert the term conversion. He writes, quote, The really important changes occurred long after the initial moment. As across generations, African believers molded their faith to local realities. One important feature of this local reality they sought to interact with was a notion of respectability that had local purchase in Zulu cultural contexts. And it's this notion of respectability that becomes the fulcrum for a particular form of Christian identity. It's a very interesting case study. So each of these, are the, I see these as three studies that tell a local story very mindful of global realities, very mindful of what I would call the world Christian turn. Finally, besides greater breadth in comprehensive histories and different kinds of local stories, the world Christian turn has created new pers- comparative perspectives that shape research. Um, one such tendency, it's I think important, is a growing inten- attention beyond continent-based Christianities, Asian or African, to ways that emerging faiths are linked through largely regional or and often nautical connections. The Atlantic world most famously, especially in literary criticism, interestingly, um, but also the Indian Ocean, as in Pierre Larson's study that I mentioned, and the Caribbean. There are a number of interesting examples of Caribbean studies. One I like is Rebecca's Revival by John Sensbach, and he's also shaped other studies of evangelical networks that bridged the Caribbean, Africa, and Europe already by the 18th century. Uh, very interesting kinds of interdynamics. And historian James Sweet studies an African healer who negotiates between Portugal, Brazil, and West Africa, already again in the 18th century. As with the reshaping of local histories of Christianity, the social scientific studies of Christianity, though the social sciences present a really important impetus for this kind of new, these kinds of new perspectives. No, no such field more so than the anthropology of Christianity, which I assume many of you have heard of, an emerging subfield, maybe 12 or 14 years old, um, which I think is not coincidentally emerged about the same time as world Christianity, as a discrete subdiscipline. Um, self-conscious partic- practitioners of the anthropology of Christianity have produced lots of interesting historical work um, and anthropological work. I'm thinking of people like Joel Robbins, William Hanks, Birgit Mayer, and there are others. Uh, this research, for me, the most important work it does is also producing conceptual tools that help us do interesting comparative work as tools in, kind of produced by a very close attention to one case are then brought to bear on new data. Um, and this has happened, for instance, in the study of how biblic- biblical resources are used by Christian communities in the work of someone like James Bielo, teaches, I think, at Miami of Ohio, an anthropologist who studied the work of Bible study groups in this country. Um, that kind of work, studying biblicism in U.S. evangelical circles, has resonance with how the Bible has been appropriated elsewhere. And other anthropologists, like Webb Keen, studies how the Bible's appropriated in Indonesia. Matthew Angelka studies how it's been used by Zimbabwean Pentecostals. Very interesting kinds of studies. Um, Keen and Angelka use this, like, this term I like very much, semiotic ideology. 
A semiotic ideology is sort of the taken-for-granted approach to religious, religiously significant signs that people bring to them. Catholics who care about sacraments, we have a very particular kind of semiotic ideology. Um, not just one, perhaps, but certainly a distinctive one compared to other Christians. Um, comparative semiotic ideologies is a very interesting way to think about how people appropriate Christianity because it shapes a whole lot of how they behave, how they write, and how they think about their faith. Um, another common study of this, of course, is how people construct the break between their pre-Christian and, post- and after-Christianity identity. There have been some good studies of this. Um, Joel Robbins has done some. Uh, there's a woman I like, Liana Chua, who studies Malaysian Borneo, does some very lovely work about this kind of repositioning that new believers do in relationship to their past. Um, other recent work links personal transformations to moral questions. Um, Richard Werbner, uh, anthropologist of Southern Africa, studies Pentecostal healers in Botswana. He calls them holy hustlers. And, <laughs> and it's an interesting term because they oscillate between very patient, careful pastoral interrogators and out-and-out exploiters of credulity. Um, and he kind of tries to understand how they put that together in their own Christian self-understanding without being profoundly hypocritical. Um, another study of Pentecostals in Botswana has moral overtones. Frederick Clates studies um, a church in Botswana that's led by a woman pastor, and he talks about how the AIDS epidemic there, Botswana is one of the highest infection rates in the world, so lots of people have died, that AIDS deaths far from undermining social cohesion have lent new terms and Christianized ways they talk about social warmth and mutual compassion. It's, it's a beautiful study, actually. Really lovely, beautiful study. Um, of course, the anthropology of Christianity is not the only social scientific field that embodies and accompanies the world Christian turn. Sociologists of religion, I think, have also produced some really important work. For me, Martin Riesebrot's theory of religion in his recent book, The Promise of Salvation, which prioritizes interventionist religious practices, is really designed to allow fruitful comparisons based on close study of particular cases. He's a former teacher of mine, so I'm not shy to present his book to you for your interest, but it's a really important work in the sociology of religion. And there are other interesting work by sociologists. Finally, there are people who study who study non who don't study Christianity, whose work has implications for Christianity. I'm thinking of scholars like Jonathan Boyarin and Jonathan Schofer, who study early rabbinics and Christian and Jewish, the intertwinings of Christian and Jewish self-identity in the early church, in the first five or seven centuries of Christianity, that I think also have implications for us as we think about Christian identity as emerges in fast-growing Christian places in the world. Of course, there are challenges remaining in this study, and I'm particularly mindful of limits in many scholars' approaches to missionary archives, which I find very unsophisticated sometimes. And I also think that we aren't very good at um, conceptualizing collective identity of new Christian communities because we don't know how to theorize very well religious belonging. And that's work I care about myself and hope to contribute to. So I want to turn a little bit to 
theology, especially Catholic theology, and this is going to be quite quick. Um, but world Christianity, as a turn, has also shaped theology, although I would say more slowly than the history of Christianity. Part of this, I think, is because theological reflection for a long time has ignored missionary activity as a source for theological reflection, unlike the history of Christianity, which turned to missionary activity earlier. Um, Another factor making theology as a field less responsive to the world Christian turn, I think, remains the denominational orientation of lots of theological reflection, which naturally orients itself toward existing communities of faith. Um, Catholics have a history here, too, of course. Um, I I admire some of my co-religionists and theologians like Steve Bevins and Robert Schreider, who have spearheaded efforts in contextual theology and methods for contextual theology. It's not accidental that most such scholars have been connected to mission studies. Um, Yet the point I want to make is that a commitment to missionary activity need not correspond with theological assumptions linked to the world Christian turn. The field of comparative theology, for instance, in which Catholics are very well represented, people like Frank Clooney, James Fredrickson, my colleague Brad Malkowski at Notre Dame, um, almost automatically tends to disavow mission as a goal of what they're about. And conversely, some of the most enthusiastic, mission-minded, evangelical, and Pentecostal theologians have little interest in dialogical or comparative theology. So the point's a simple one. There's not a one-to-one correspondence between caring about mission and the world Christian turn. For me, uh, the most interesting person embodying this tension is actually the recent pope, Benedict XVI, um, who, as Joseph Ratzinger, was long concerned in his theological criticisms of others, especially with maintaining and even strengthening the church's missionary commitments, whether he was criticizing Latin American theologians or theologians interested in interreligious dialogue or to people too, who he felt were too kind of enthusiastic about enculturation, the grounds for doing so were often because he wanted to emphasize the need to preach Christ in mission. The point's a simple one. He really cared about mission. But his theological instincts led him to criticize lots of what is taken for granted as missionary priorities in theological reflection. And he's not alone. One can find a lot of evaluations, these are some concluding remarks, of contemporary globalization's effects on Christian faith and practice that have helped shape world Christianity. These are inspired by an historian, Fred Cooper. I see three different paradigmatic reactions to world Christianity. First, there are enthusiasts. Enthusiasts see a laudable proliferation of theological creativity and inspiring discipleship as social differences generate new Christian incarnations in particular places and times. Second, there are pessimists who see combination or variation of chaotic confusion, widespread secularist disaffection with Christianity, deepening syncretism, and what Jesuit Superior General Adolfo Nicolás has called, I love this phrase, 
the globalization of superficiality. Nicholas is not an enemy of any of this stuff, but it's a nice phrase from him. And another pessimistic strain sees a widespread loss of cultural vitality in local places as Christianity moves in. Um, one indigenous thinker in Africa talks about, as soon as our thoughts are written down, we lose them in a very profound way. I don't, I don't know what to do about that, but it does make one pessimistic. Third, there are those who acknowledge the bewildering varieties of ways to be Christian today and in the past and in the future and simply try to understand them with that withholding judgment. As a field, those committed to world Christianity tend to be enthusiasts. That'd be some theologians, lots of historians. Um, and the third option, kind of, isn't that interesting what's going on? How historians of Christianity can tend to be there. And that dichotomy represents a difficulty for an emerging field like this one, which wants to bring together all sorts of disciplines for the study of Christian variety um, in all its interesting manifestations. My own suggestion is that if there is a theological field with historical roots that is equipped to study world Christianity in some way as a master discipline, it would be the field of missiology. I'm not trained in missiology, but boy, I like to read in it. And I'm especially inspired by the way its leading practitioners today construct their task. Contemporary missiologists have worked very hard to loosen missionary practice, the best of them, from negative historical associations linked with the term mission. And the field is remarkably ecumenical, dialogical, comprehensive of other theological areas, embracing of the social sciences, and very attentive to transformations past and present in Christian manifestations. For all these reasons, missiology seems to me uniquely situated to serve as a master discipline for the field of world Christianity, well poised to capture the phenomenon that this, this term seeks to name. So that's about it for me. Thank you very much for listening. So we have about 20 minutes for questions. I'll be glad to uh, field them and pass off the microphone so Stan can be sure to record your comments and everybody else can hear. So, Bill. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, um, thanks, Bill. You paint an uh, optimistic picture of the discipline of missiology, which has been burdened in some ways from different angles and different interlocutors for the history of the Western missionary movement since 1792. But um, I'm encouraged by that and, and by linking it to all the different disciplines that you've suggested. Do you see any structural impediments in missiology as it relates to other disciplines or, say, in theological departments today? I mean, I'm thinking of Andrew Wall's seminal work on the structural problems of mission studies. Mm -hmm. It's now probably 30, 30 years, years old. old. I think you read it in the mid, mid early 80s, right? Yeah. And are, are those structural problems still in place, or do we have a whole set of new problems to I think to we have a, a whole set of new problems because 
but there's also promise. But the, the problems continue. My sense is there's been even greater polarization in the academy than when he wrote in Approaches to Religion. So the allergy to the term mission has not gone away in some circles. Although, interestingly, I find in a lot of major universities where religion is studied, it's people outside of the, pro- the departments of religious studies who are most interested in studying mission, whether they be historians, English professors, sociologists, anthropologists. And a lot of them don't have the built-in bias that seminary professors and religious studies scholars bring to the study of religion. It's real interesting to me just looking out at the field. It's like, huh. And they write some of the most interesting stuff connected to mission. I've been really heartened by Stan Skreslet's recent book. Um, I forget the title of it, but just came out. It's kind of a comprehensive view of the field of mission studies. And um, Stan is a friend. You, you know Stan, I think. He teaches at, um, I don't know where, it's in Virginia, you, um, Union Presbyterian. And uh, I just think he paints a picture of a capacious discipline that can do a lot to advance theological understanding of what we call world Christianity. And for me, that's very promising. Within the limitations. I mean, we don't have a missiology field at Notre Dame. I wish we did. And we kind of, you know, people scramble around to do it. So we have something called World Religions, World Church, a new doctoral area, which is where all the people who want to study with me might apply. Um, I've been in the history of Christianity for years, and I've had, well, I did have one guy apply, and I was on leave, so I couldn't get him. I, I couldn't argue for him. It broke my heart. But, you know, we have a heavy early church, medieval Christianity kind of focus in our history of Christianity area. And we have very distinguished people there. So um, I think, I don't know exactly how Emory University and Candler figure all this out. But my sense is a great number of institutions like yours and mine are trying to figure out how to structurally organize themselves to study well these topics. And they come up with a variety of rubrics under which to do so. In the place of world Christianity chairs is one way. But a chair does not a field make. And it, that, the, such people can feel like albatrosses in their own institutions if they're not well supported. That, I've talked to some who have such positions and have felt that way. Hi. Yeah. Yes, I have a question about uh, my name is Rafa and I'm a second year. I have a question about with uh, Pope Francis or uh, Vicar. Uh, Vicar of Christ. How do you see him now as the first Jesuit, also Latin American? How do you see that changing our role in world Christianity as far as the Roman Catholic perspective? I mean, I just think he's doing a phenomenal job, and I'm, you know, of course, as a loyal and faithful Catholic, I love the Pope, His Holiness. So, how do you see it, and do you love the Pope? (laughs) Um, I've never met him. Insofar as one can love someone one never met, I love him. Um, I, I, preserve, I reserve the term love for certain kinds of relationships. I'm very fond of the Pope, and I believe in the, the Petrine ministry very much, and I've certainly been edified by his gestures. It seems to me this is an age where religious gestures can be much more powerful than religious words, and he seems to have mastered the gesture, and his evident humility is compelling. Um, it'll be interesting to see the extent to which his Jesuit training and his Latin American upbringing and 
orientation in that church shapes his actual governing of the church. My own read is that we've now had the two most intellectual popes in our history. They wrote more than, I mean, John Paul II, I think, wrote more than any other pope, all the other popes in history combined. And uh, Benedict's written a whole lot too. So these are the two most intellectual popes in history. And in some ways, the internal life of the Vatican did suffer, especially John Paul II had a lot of vigor before he was shot, had some after he was shot, but then really got sick. So the, the internal governing of the church is hard work. And that, that's probably what this pope needs to do more than write interesting things. Um, part of that's like protecting my job. I'm a theologian. I should be able to write things, and you ought to pay me for it. But um, also, I just think governing the church is hard work. And the Vatican is, uh, those offices are complicated, and you have to fight battles there. I don't think Benedict even tried that hard. I think he was old when he was elected. And John Paul II, when, after he was shot, was never quite as vigorous in those efforts as, as he could have been. Um, so... Benedict was, was, I mean, they're brilliant. And we're, we're grateful for what they've given us. It'll be interesting to see what Francis gives us. Yeah. Thanks, Paul, for a great lecture. Um, oh, I have two questions, and they move in different directions. Um, one is the question, um, it was raised by your first paradigm of the ways in which these um, histories of Christianity, like Marty's or Wilkins, um, have, if you will, taken the global turn, so taken the world Christianity turn, mm -hmm. and expanded the canon of what or how you write that history. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things, as a theologian in my mind, I'm saying, hey, they're embracing a much um, broader picture about what Christianity is. Good, good. But then I'm thinking there's also normative implications in the way in which somebody like Marty or somebody like Wilkin would see that um, expanding of the canon or what can, what's in and what's out. So I guess I'm, that's my, my first question, is about thinking about um, changing the narratives or expanding the narratives also has theological and normative commitments. And if you want to say something about that, okay. um, here's another big one. Um, mm -hmm. you, a lot of your examples are wonderful from Africa and from the Asian uh, global south. And we've talked a little bit about, you and I, about what would it mean to kind of look very deeply at Latin America as another context and how that might sh shape shift world Christianity. So I just wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about, um, I know that's not your area of expertise, mm. but how you think the Latin Americanists um, are changing what world's Christianity is focusing on or how they're taking the turn. Yeah. Um. There's a number of things I could say to both questions. Let me, for the first one, let me just say quickly, one of the things about the term the canon is, of course, in theological jargon, the main referent of that is texts. Um, one of the things that I think, things that historians of Christianity have helped us see in the last 40 or 50 years is that exemplary figures and paradigmatic historical experiences can also be part of the canon, in as much as because we're beings who are historically situated in the present, we're constantly locating ourselves in the relationship to a past and a future horizon, et cetera, et cetera. We know all this. But that means imaginative work that brings together past realities and the present is an always ongoing thing we do. So 
part of me just thinks that one of the gifts of world Christian, the world Christian turn, and it's not just that, but it's a different way to do history, history, is that kind of imaginative work. We're more self-conscious about the expansion of the canon beyond texts because histor- the Crusades are a part of the, his- the canon of the West now, for good or for ill. Um, and, and the Holocaust is increasingly part of the canon of the West in, for Christian theology. And I think that's laudable. It, it changes the notion of normativity, as you suggest. And I don't, I don't think of myself as a good enough systematic theologian to think about how, but I'm sure it does. I, it's just not my field. But it, those are just some quick thoughts about that question, which I, I hope I don't, didn't skate it. I, um, the question of Latin America is an interesting one. The other, I was just at a global climate change conference, and I gave the closing remarks. And I said, global climate change is an apocalyptic... I said, let's make a distinction between an apocalyptic experience and an apocalyptic event. An apocalyptic event changes the world. An apocalyptic experience is experiencing a change in the world. So 9-11, I would say, following a friend of mine's judgment, was not an apocalyptic event, but it was experienced as an apocalyptic experience, especially by people in New York City or who lost loved ones or whose worldview got unsettled. But as an event, it really didn't change everything. We're all the same, right? I said, the only apocalyptic event I know of in the last thousand years is the Columbian encounter, which ended worlds, like for 100 million people, starting in 1492. So the most densely populated place on Earth was Mexico City. 25 million people in contemporary Mexico in in 15, whatever. One million 50 years later. So remarkable loss of population. Eight million people on Hispaniola. 200 traceable to that original population 30 years later. Unbelievable population. Those are, those are apocalyptic events. The reason I say that is that's one of the things Latin America can teach. But it, in some ways, that's a very hard historical reality to capture Christ, and as a Christian story because we're, we're part of the perpetration as well as the recovery from it. Um, second, as you and I and Arun had this nice conversation at breakfast, so thank you for throwing that softball to me. When I think about, um, when I think about the primary gifts different parts of the world have to give to the global church, I do think of Asia as sort of the place where interreligious dialogue is the primary missionary impetus, simply because of the diversity of religions there, the large number of big communities of co-religionists creating bodies with representatives that can be dialogued with. So interreligious dialogue in Asia, I would say Africa, because of the ongoing life of existing communities shaped by language and culture. Enculturation is in some ways the primary missionary demand in a place like Africa and much of Africa. In Latin America, it's kind of really close attention to particular historical realities. Beginning with liberation theologians like Gustavo Gutierrez, my colleague at Notre Dame, but a lot of others, have focused on the historical specificity of Latin American experience as ground for theological reflection. And they can teach the global church about how to do that. I think of the work of Ignacio Eacuria in particular, who uses that word historical experience in a very particular way. Um, So that's what I would say. And and I know some of that material, but not... It's, I don't read Spanish as well as I'd like, and it's just a vast... It's its own world theologically, right? 
And it's, it's a complicated one because Catholics and Protestants there don't always get along as well as we would like for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for your lecture. I'm Wonshir, third year MDF student. Nice and my question is how does the development of world Christianity shape or influence the life of a uh, local congregation, I think? So, for example, I uh, taught, uh, I, I was taught the, late, the his, local history of Lady Guadalupe in Latin America. And then it's cool. We, we found that there is a kind of indignized form of Christian, Christianity in, uh, over the world. But how does impact to local congregation, especially who uh, have white congregations dominant? So there is my mm. question. So it, great, it, yeah, yeah. great question. I think it, it's very hard to, I mean, in some ways you're asking a question about, it's two, I see two different questions. What is actually happening? And what should happen? I mean, you're training for the ministry, right? You're a third-year MDiv student. You're training for ministry in the church, in the Christian community of some sort. Um, I, I, again, coined this phrase just a little while ago. Uh, I coined it. But I talked about the fact that I really like um, being at home in the church in East Africa, where I spend a lot of time in Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, and the United States. Because when I'm really angry at the church in the United States, I can sort of imagine myself into the church in Africa. And when I'm really angry at the church in Africa, I can imagine myself in the United States. So I call this comparative anger management. <laughs> um, now, that's one... It doesn't have to be anger management. It can just be like... That perspective does free you from feeling despair about the future of the church to kind of have feet in different parts of the global world where Christianity is growing or where it's facing compl complications. Like, you know, for us Catholics, starting in the 90s, but again terribly in 2001, 2002, the sex abuse crisis was horrible. And as a Catholic priest, we suffered. Um, and Africa's not free of that. But it wasn't the constant drumbeat of the media in Africa. And Africa's got its own issues. The African Catholic Church has its own issues that I wouldn't want to trade for. But being able to have a global perspective does keep you from a narrow perspective that can make you sad or tear your heart down. Um, and I do think that's one thing we can bring local congregations. World Christianity is exciting, not simply because there's growth there, but because the growth there shows people alive in the Holy Spirit. Discovering riches in scripture, we, didn't, we forgot, right? Um, thinking about sacraments, Catholics think about sacraments. Thinking about celebrating the sacraments in ways that are new and exciting. Um, that we, we just sort of, they become run-of-the-mill for us sometimes. But in communities where reconciliation is really needed, the Catholic Church in Rwanda, that sacrament takes on a particular shape it doesn't take in Buckhead, right? So, does that make, does it? Some word about the trend of the youth of Christianity and what is that going to look like or is this just another cycle of generations where the church has been young in the past as well? And yeah, and I don't know that how to answer that question either. Um, the, 
the polarizing aging of the world is such a complicated thing, right? Um, the, if countries have fast-growing populations, Nigeria, Bangladesh, Pakistan, they have very young populations. If they have stable or declining populations, Russia, Japan, they're going to have aging populations, no, much, much of Western Europe. It's, it doesn't seem to me accidental that the some of the fastest growing places of, of Christianity are also going to be some of the youngest countries, Congo, Nigeria. But the larger, the, the, but Islam is younger and growing faster in more countries that are huge population numbers, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Muslim parts of India, etc. So I don't know what to say about that. Um, certainly, the, the weird thing about being a place like Notre Dame, and I would imagine if you're in a seminary like this, it can also be a bit distortive, is we're pleased to work with idealistic young people all the time. Um, and it, what a gift it is to work with such folks. But it does mislead, I think, about the shape of the congregations we're going to be serving in and we even partake in in our daily lives. Um, and, and I worry sometimes about the academy having a, especially highly resourced, visible places that produce lots of scholarship like this and like Notre Dame. We can mislead because we don't always, because our own instincts make us appreciate the energy and the idealism we witness in our students and overlook some of the other sides of the church. That's not a very satisfying answer to a really interesting and complicated question, but, yeah. Yeah. Why don't you take this What is your opinion on international short-term missions and how it, um, how productive it is um, as to uh, comparing to, I guess, the um, world religions, um, Christianity, I'm sorry, as a world religion? Uh, thank you. What an interesting question and one that's really important. Um, she asked about short-term missions, which I direct a center for, for social concerns in our university. We send students, 60 students a summer for eight to 10 weeks in international settings, so I care about this, but we don't call it mission, we call it summer service, because we also have an allergy to the word, but um, I would like to call it mission, but I couldn't get away with it. Um, I think short-term mission is very expensive. Because it's so expensive, preparing well for it, doing everything we can to make it as meaningful as possible, and learning from it, everything that can possibly learn from it, has to be incumbent upon us who help organize such things. Um, the resources that are used in sending, and sometimes the, the theological impulse that drives it gives me great pause. Um, like, I once, I was on an airplane from, uh, and <laughs> it was like a bunch of teenagers with t-shirts that were the same color. And they were going to do summer service somewhere, right? And so it was something like, God loved Uganda so much, he sent me. <laughs> something like that. And um, I didn't, I, I mean, I didn't know what to do about that. Um, I, but it, 
It wasn't good. So, uh, you know, it, the Catholic Church is behind most Protestant congregations in the U.S. on these kinds of practices, at least for international stuff. Um, and part of the reason is resources, but part of the reason, I think, is um, a, the, for all of our... We, we, it's harder to get that kind of, those kinds of theological statements put in public in a Catholic place because you'll get in trouble. <laughs> so it, there's a little bit of more control. We have other issues, but um, yeah, I, um, and it's, not, it's certainly not the majority of Protestants for whom that would, that would be their driving impulse, but it's certain groups that we could name, right? Um, so that, that's my answer. I don't think it's, it absolutely should be forbidden. For some students, it's transformative. Simply put, it becomes really important for their sense of how they follow the Lord. And I wouldn't, how can we sort of say they shouldn't be able to use their resources that way, right? We can't unilaterally tell people that. Should pastors be convinced that this is an important thing for their parish to do? I think pastors have to make those kinds of judgments based on how they understand their people. But I think the costs are real. It costs $2,000 to fly to Uganda in the summer. Another couple thousand to stay there for two weeks. Um, Four thousand dollars could build, who knows, a classroom. So to bring thirty students over there, hundred twenty thousand dollars. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Okay, we have uh, two more questions. I'm going to take them both and then uh, let okay. Paul answer. We, we're we're trying to wear them out today as best as possible. Thank you, Paul. I still have a question about how the world Christian turn affects theology rather than history of Christianity. And partly this has to do for me that I understand the first part. History studies the particulars. So um, you study the particulars in a different way. Theology, in the traditional sense, looks for normative statements. And so it becomes much more difficult um, for me to imagine um, the direction that theology takes. I, I just read with some of my students uh, Teresa Berger's Gender Differences and the Making of Liturgical History, fascinating study. And that brings up similar questions. And you know, the author, is under, Berger, understands herself as a historian, but she also indicates clearly that this has a normative interest behind it. And yet I still struggle how one um, translates the one into the other. <clears throat> Thanks. Let's take that. Your question. Um, I'm just wondering if you're, do you feel like Western institutions are capable of creating a coherent or constructive missiological understanding given the deep rifts between progressive and conservative Christianity in American culture um, that we have seen played out, especially in this year and things like that. Um, but is it even possible to get to sort of a coherent missiology among Western institutions? Thanks. Um, I, I was sort of hoping those questions would be more overlapping, but they're pretty different. <laughs> right, let me answer yours first. I do think there's there's a way to develop a coherent missiology. And I think, um, for me, um, Steve Bevins and Roger Schrader's book, Constance in Context, points in that direction. Their notion of prophetic dialogue, I think, brings together lots of missiological reflection in a really thoughtful way. 
it's not perfect, but it's a work in progress. And um, there are other people who I do think also have things to, to contribute to that. But their work brings together a lot of missiological reflection. That, and it's helped me bring lots together in a single vision. So, um, so I think it is possible. But it, it'll require a lot of work. And I'm not sure church bodies are that interested in creating that kind of coherence. But I wish they were. Um, Stefan's question about theology being oriented towards creating norms. I understand that as one of theology's important functions. Um, my sense is theology under the world Christian turn would simply recognize that such norms come from somewhere and that new Christian instantiations, new kinds of cultures and social and historical experiences that foster Christian identity are going to bring new ways to think about the constants of Christian theology. So it's clear to me, for instance, that Africans have helped us understand Christ in a new way and read the scriptures in, this, in a new way. My sense is the Rwandan church can teach us about reconciliation in interesting ways that we haven't yet figured out how to share with the global church. Um, some of those places that are going to suffer environmental degradation due to global warming earlier, those places are inhabited by believers. They're going to give us a sense of what it means to face an apocalyptic reality that might be like the 6th century B.C., the, the exile, that might return us to read Jeremiah differently because an island nation in the Pacific has lost its land forever. And that's where their people are buried. And they've figured out how to put ancestor veneration into their Christianity in a way that works, that's accepted by their Catholic Church, but now those graves are gone forever. What, what, what then? So that's how I'd answer. I would say the world Christian turn can contribute to, to Christian, Christian theology because it will just reopen what norms mean and help us think about them in new ways. I don't think it'll change them fundamentally, but we learn new stuff about Christ and we think about him as an ancestor using African cultural tools, I think. Does that make sense? Paul, well, thank you so much. You've given us uh, a great deal to think about. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's really, really been nice to be here. I appreciate the questions. Yeah, thanks. We hope this is not your last visit. Me too. I'd love to return. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.